If you will open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke once more, chapter 18, and we're going to begin reading in verse 31. We, are, we will make our way uh, into chapter 19 and be reading uh, through verse 10. So the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, and our reading will begin in verse 31. It's hard to believe, but in two weeks... We will celebrate the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as we approach uh, that high and holy time of year for all who know the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, I would pray that God would prepare our hearts, that that we would begin to uh, even uh, more diligently and, and more faithfully uh, focus on the the truth of the Word of God. And as uh, I've kind of recognized in these uh, last few weeks that that day is coming. It's coming uh, quickly. Uh, so I've kind of this morning uh, hit the accelerator uh, on our text. And I, I want to look this morning at, at three distinct episodes, uh, episodes that most likely we would have spent an entire Sunday on, but I believe there's a way that the Holy Spirit, uh, working in our gospel writer Luke, organized and placed these things together uh, for a purpose, and so I don't really uh, regret, I'm not apologizing for grouping these things uh, together, but I, I, I planned it so that on Easter Sunday morning, our text would be Luke's uh, account of the triumphal entry. And so from that moment all the way uh, through the final chapter and verse of the Gospel of Luke, uh, you really have the testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so uh, the, the balance of our preaching from this Gospel can rightly be identified as an Easter series. And so we'll be uh, getting into that in a couple of weeks. And so as we work our way through this morning, we uh, really come to to kind of a a, a bit of a a comma. Uh, Jesus has been uh, saying things, doing things, addressing uh, certain people. And uh, the text we'll look at uh, next week uh, really is a text that warns of a coming judgment, of an indictment. Uh, upon the nation uh, for their unbelief and again sets the stage for uh, that entry. And so this morning we want to look at Jesus' uh, prophetic word uh, in terms of his again announcing, predicting, prophesying what is ultimately going to happen to him when he arrives in Jerusalem. And that he is not only going to be the one that will suffer and die, but He is the one in whom all of the power in all of the world has been vested. He is going to once again demonstrate the reality of who He is. And then we see in the final account uh, this morning, uh, not only this miraculous work in the heart of this infamous uh, tax collector, Zacchaeus, but we'll see once again Jesus remind us of what his purpose was 
and what his purpose still is as we gather here uh, today. And so with those things being said, let's read uh, our passage beginning in verse 31, and we'll go down to verse 10 in chapter 19. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them. They did not grasp what he said. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more. Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, let me recover my sight. Jesus said to him, Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in statue. So he ran on ahead and climbed into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, Hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. And so he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Pray with me, if you will. Father, once again, we thank you for your word. We have gathered around your word. We've gathered around this that you have given us so that we may know you that we may know you in the forgiveness of our sin, that we may know you as the all-sufficient one. And Lord, I would pray today that you would assist, that you would help me, that I would preach faithfully, first of all. And then, Lord, that I would preach with clarity. And that your Spirit would work in me and work in those that are hearing this today and that will hear it later that you would illuminate our hearts 
in our minds that we would have understanding and grasp the implications and application. And then, Lord, if there's one here or one that will hear later that does not know you, Lord, that they would cry out, that they would know you as the promised Savior, and they would cry out, have mercy on me. Lord, we would ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we come here, we see it once again that the Gospel writer Luke is very interested in using irony and comparison and contrast as we read through the different episodes, the different uh, segments, the different encounters, we can see that each of them tends to at least have a, a counterpart that either contrasts or in, in some ways complements that which Jesus has already uh, said. And we've made the case that uh, Luke emphasizes the un-nature of what Jesus has come uh, to accomplish. Uh, he is going to say a word to these disciples that is unacceptable to them. They object to that which Jesus tells them will happen uh, to him. And then he will display power that is unexplainable, except for he is the Son of God. He is uniquely anointed of God to be God's instrument to work powerfully in this world and let me tell you whether we look at creation whether we look at the word of God uh, whether we were there to encounter the incarnate son of God everything is unexplainable until God through the workings of his Holy Spirit makes us gives us the ability to understand gives us those eyes to see we we will find an alternative explanation but not the true explanation for the facts at hand. And so it's unexplainable except for the fact Jesus is the Christ. And then we see him dealing with an unlikely convert, uh, an unsavory character in uh, the infamous, infamous and now famous uh, tax collector named Zacchaeus. And so we see here once again in verse 31... Luke's penchant for noting this is who I am speaking to or this is who Jesus was speaking to. You remember he'll say, and Jesus said to the crowds, and then he said to the disciples, and here again he said to the twelve. It may be that when he references the disciples, he has in mind a broader group than the twelve. But here he notes specifically Jesus wants to speak to the twelve. He has something that is absolutely important that they need to get a hold of they're not going to understand it until after all of these things uh, come to pass but he is still instructing them and so he is speaking to the disciples and in his prophetic word that describes his approaching persecution he is also defining his mission this is why I came. You, the disciples, think I came for something different for the reason I came, but I'm going to keep telling you this is why I came, and I am bent, I am now pursuing the reason for my coming 
uh, into the world. And so we see speaking to the twelve, and he says we're going to Jerusalem. If you remember going all the way back to chapter 9, verse 51, Luke calls to our attention that, that Jesus Christ has now set his face toward Jerusalem. He is ready to pursue ultimately and finally that reason for his coming to be born of the virgin, for his living under the law, for him, his living as the perfect man. He has come to be the effective sacrifice. And so he is going to Jerusalem so that all things may be accomplished. And he says that I'm going and in going everything that has been written about the Son of Man by the prophets. All that was contained in the Old Testament or Old Covenant revelation that pointed and predicted and promised the Lord Jesus Christ is going to be fulfilled. I just took just a, a really a few minutes just because I like to do these things. I like these things to go back and, and to see the, the sequencing of how from the very dawn of human history God has begun to promise and foreshadow His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Most of you are aware that the first glimpse of a Savior is found in the third chapter of our Bible, very early in the course of human history, soon after man's rebellion brought all men into the state and status of sin. That, that there's this promise that, a, that the seed of the woman shall have his heel bruised, but even in that bruising, he will crush the head of the serpent. And in the accomplishment on the cross, that's exactly what our Lord Jesus Christ does and did. In Genesis 12, we see that in the call of Abraham, uh, God says that, that he is going to be a blessing and, and to, the, to the nations, that he is going to receive a blessing, but he is going to be a blessing. And that ultimate blessing is going to come from his greatest descendant this one that we know as Jesus. Then in Genesis 49, as Jacob pronounces blessings upon his, his sons, he identifies uh, one as the lion of the tribe of Judah, one uh, that the scepter shall not depart from his, between his feet. One that, why will the scepter not depart? Because he will be the one to rule and reign forever. And then in Deuteronomy 8, 18, 15, we're told that there will be a prophet like unto Moses. Now there are many distinctions that we could make between uh, the prophetic offices held by our Lord Jesus and by Moses. They're from entirely different tribes. Moses is of the tribe of Levi. Jesus is of the tribe of Judah. He, he's not even qualified to serve as a priest. But he is a priest. And he is the prophet in that he leads what? The ultimate and the effective Exodus. It was a great thing for Moses to lead that nation out of, out of Egypt. But how much greater is our Lord Jesus as the one who leads our exodus from sin and judgment and hell and leads us into that ultimate Sabbath rest. 2 Samuel 7, he is the ultimate occupant of the throne promised to the descendants of David, a throne that he shall rule from forever. In Isaiah 7 and 9, he is the, the child born to the virgin. And in Micah 5, he is the king born in Bethlehem. In Psalm 22 and 
Psalm 110 in Isaiah 53, He is the suffering servant, the one persecuted, rejected, and crucified as our Savior. He is the one that receives the body prepared for Him through which He will sacrifice Himself for our salvation. In Zechariah 9, He is the humble King presenting Himself to the people as their King, gentle and riding on a donkey. Daniel 7, he is that Son of Man referred to here as the one who will receive from the Ancient of Days an everlasting kingdom. He's also the one in Daniel 7 that shall be the anointed one that shall be cut off. He's also the, the uh, stone not hewn from human hands that shall come and crush all of the kingdoms of this world and they will be blown away like chaff and He will rule and reign in perfect righteousness over a kingdom that will endure forever. Indeed, all that is written of our Lord Jesus Christ either has been or will be fulfilled. And so Jesus summarizes what is a, about to happen there in verse 32. He is going to be rejected. He is not going to be received. And, and I, I think in, in seeing this and, and just looking forward to that triumphal entry, we, we kind of know the rest of the story. How ironic is it? Jesus says, I'm going to be rejected. And then he enters to great fanfare, doesn't he? But that fanfare doesn't last very long when he arrives in Jerusalem. And so, he's going to be rejected in verse 33. He is going to be crucified. Again, how is this possible? How, how can you say, and if you go back into verses 29 and 30 of chapter 18, after this interview this encounter with the rich young ruler as he's answering questions about what just went down here what what did you say to that guy and he explains to them that for those of you that have forsaken all for those of you that are following after me the rewards are far greater the benefits are more blessed than anything you could receive otherwise not just in the life to come but in the present life and so as y'all know i'm as far removed from uh, an apostle of the health and wealth it's not a gospel it's it's a anti-gospel but i'm opposed to that but let me tell you that the current blessings of knowing the Lord Jesus Christ are far better than anything else that anyone else has to offer. Far better than the entertainments of the flesh, the offerings of the world, and the temptations that the devil may put in our place. Even in this life, knowing Jesus Christ is better. Now we see in verse 34, and this, this kind of, you go, well, why? We're told in verse 34, Jesus speaks in good King James English here. You know, you know that's what Jesus spoke, right? King James English. Okay. And, and so he spoke in good, plain English here. How could they miss what he has just said? I think Jesus would tell you communication is a difficult thing. Okay? Y'all have heard that somewhere before, I know. But, but, but they don't get it. But 
It had to be, obviously, a part of the plan of God. That these disciples would be oblivious. That, 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 that they just could not fathom. Now, why? What was clearly stated, how could they not get it? Because they were so deeply seeped and embedded and ingrained in their own thoughts and expectations and presuppositions. This is what the king and kingdom will look like, and this is what our role is going to be, that they did not, they would not, and they could not hear and understand. It is only later two things, well, you could say, I guess, three things. The crucifixion, the resurrection, and the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit gives them what? What we might call, aha, I see it. God had his purpose for them not understanding at this point. They could not fathom that this was what they were in for, what was going to happen to their Lord. And so they don't understand it until they ultimately do understand it with the working of the Spirit. And they, that the Spirit takes all of these words that Jesus had shared with them, had spoke with them over these three years, takes all they knew about the Old Testament and all the prophecies, and, and they go, we get the picture. We, we, we can see the tapestry in all of its great beauty. And so, Jesus predicts and promises and prophesies this is a, a, what is about to happen. Now we move forward into verse 35 and we're going to see that Jesus displays His power against someone that's really unable to help themselves. Of The most uh, pitiful of all people would be those that have lost their sight. They are genuinely uh, at the mercy of God to have provision and how much more so in the ancient world. It would seem, at least it may not have been the prevailing attitude, but really probably likely was, might not have been the stated attitude, but as always the disciples were always perfectly willing to put their foot in their mouths. If you'll remember the encounter with the blind man found in John 9, the question is what? Now, okay, we see that he's blind, so who sinned, him or his father? Or parents? And so the assumption was something had happened, they had, some individual had done something, and this was a judgment uh, from uh, God. And so that morphed certainly into Judaism, into very much a, a way of ostracizing those that were afflicted with blindness. Uh, uh, very much of, uh, okay, we're not coming to you, and, and you don't come to us. You sh we're we're going to stay away. And so we're told that, that Jesus is approaching the ancient city of Jericho. We're familiar with Jericho. It's kind of the gateway into the promised land, the, the city that was destroyed uh, in Joshua's conquest with the walls falling down. Well, uh, uh, just a few miles from where there, those ruins were located, uh, there was a city uh, that was uh, existent. Uh, in the days of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's kind of a gateway uh, in, uh, to Palestine there. And so we're told that in that city, there's a, a blind man. And he's doing what only a blind person could do in order to provide for himself. And that is namely, he was begging. 
and we see that that he is he he is certainly evidently nothing wrong with his hearing he evidently hears a commotion going on uh, whether it's uh, the voices or just the the noise of a, a larger group of people being uh, moving uh, in and through and up the the roadway uh, there in Jericho he hears and he inquires he he asks uh, what's what's going on here? Who who's approaching? What is all this now noise? It's obviously something significant for because there there are a lot of people and there's a lot of of noise. Uh, uh, I, I'm told that people, particularly that uh, lose their sight, uh, their their uh, ability to discern all kinds of things simply through uh, the 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 gift or the the sense of hearing becomes very acute and they're very sensitive uh, to what noises mean and so he was aware that something was up and when he inquired the crowd tells him well it's Jesus of Nazareth and he is passing by and upon hearing that in verse 38 he cries out it's all he knows to do he can't he can't run up to Jesus as we've seen other people do Evidently, he remains where he was. And, and he, he cries out and identifies him as the son of David. I think that tells us that, that at least at some point, this man uh, was instructed uh, under the, uh, the law, under the, the old covenant. He had some knowledge of that which uh, God had promised uh, in the descendants of, of David. And, and so he had heard enough to think, that, that, that this Jesus of Nazareth was not only just a, a guy from a little small town that was a carpenter's son, but he was the fulfillment of God's promise to them. And so he identifies him as the son of David, and he, he cries out for mercy, for, for pity, for, for this one who can do something to do something. Look there in verse 39. As he cried out, drawing attention to himself, obviously, he's rebuked. And that word in Greek is a fairly strong word. It, it was very much, shut up. Hey, don't, don't disturb. You're, you're creating a scene. Just be quiet. Stay out of the way. Don't distract Jesus from passing by. That just says those were who were in front. I don't know if... To what degree those were inner circle type associates of Jesus, who that was. But evidently, uh, the, the, Jesus was behind uh, a certain group that was with him. And so again, they tell this man to quiet down, to, to shut up. And when they tell him that, there in verse 39, he cries out all the more. He raises the volume and, and maybe even the intensity and, 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 and repeats, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy. Have mercy. My only hope is you. And so he, he cries out and upon hearing that voice, now it could be, Luke doesn't really tell us, it could be that it's one of those things kind of like the woman with the issue of blood as Jesus is passing through and people are touching him, wanting to touch him, and all of a sudden he goes, who touched me? I mean, I would assume this was a loud thing, that, that there were a lot of people talking and people were probably asking Jesus this, that, and the other, and 
he hears this man above the crowd. And he wants to know. It's likely many people were calling Jesus. Jesus, the son of David. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. But this one is singled out. And so Jesus stopped and and commanded that that someone bring him. In other words, he couldn't make his way uh, to Jesus, couldn't get through the crowd. He He was blind. And Jesus begins to interview him there in verse 40. And he asks him, What do you want me to do for you? This man has sought out Jesus. He's learned that he's passing by and he's he's seeking diligently and he will not be thwarted. He, He will not be frustrated. He is going to come to Jesus. He recognizes he is the only hope. Now you have the down and out, the blind man. No one really in that society could be more down and out and Jesus receives him and welcomes him and there, there's really we don't have in our accounts very much of a raking him over the coals no man putting his hand to the plow looking back is fit for the kingdom of God he, he doesn't look at him and, and say you need to sell everything you've got it wouldn't have applied to him anyway most likely. He seems simply to welcome him, recognizing that he is genuinely and earnestly and passionately seeking Jesus Christ. And so he hears from the man, Lord, let me recover my sight. So I think that suggests he wasn't born blind, but because of some type of affliction, he goes blind. And so I want to have my sight back. Very simple, very straightforward uh, uh, request. And Jesus speaks back to him. Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. We talk many times about the distinction between the object of faith and faith. The Bible tells us very plainly, without faith it's impossible to please God. Without faith it's impossible to to know God. Faith is, if we would have salvation, if we would have peace in this world, it will be on the basis of faith. But there's also the sense where faith is not of intrinsic value. Faith in and of itself does not have the ability to heal. It is the one in whom that place is faith placed. And that faith has been placed here in this encounter in the one who can heal. He makes his request of the one who is ultimately the healer. The one that came, as he noted early in his ministry, to give sight to the blind. And so he asks of Jesus. He goes to, to, that, to the right one, to the, to the right source, to the one who can and the one who will heal him of his blindness. And so, that faith, through faith, you have been made well. Because you have sought me out. You, you've diligently sought me. And in the all-encompassing and all-wise providence of God, you've been brought to the end of your own rope. You've got nowhere else to go. And you're coming to me. And you're coming in faith, believing that I can and that I will answer your request. Now, passages like this always beg, well, why doesn't Jesus heal everyone? Uh, I I can't answer that. That's a question we'll have to answer God. He He can heal, and as we pray, 
And as we trust and as we seek to cultivate and deepen uh, our, our faith, we, under, we need to also by faith understand that all of God's decisions are right and they're wise and they're good. Whatever the providences of our life are, as I have prayed so many times over the years for, for the healing of many, many times I say this, I cannot say what God will do in any specific instance, but I have no doubt as to what God can do. And we, we trust God, whether the providence that He brings to our lives is a smiling providence or whether it's a frowning providence. That's why our, our faith must be strengthened and nurtured so that we can say in every circumstance, it is well with my soul. Whether we rejoice or whether we grieve, it is well. And so, we see here a fourth prayer that you can add to your prayer list. We've talked a little bit about the prayers that Hey, these are always good prayers to pray. You, you can speak to your unbelieving friends. So you, you, need, you need to begin to pray these prayers daily as a part of seeking after the salvation that Jesus Christ so freely gives. J.C. Riles in his commentary on Luke notes how this blind beggar took advantage of the means of grace. That means being, namely the incarnate Savior who is the great physician. He, was, he, he, he went to a place where the, he could meet the Lord Jesus Christ, and he did. So how do you tell people to have this encounter, this, this meeting? To take the means of grace that's available to them. To find a church in which the Word of God is preached and taught, and it is believed to go to the Word of God themselves, and you read that Word, Word of God, and you call out, Lord, I believe. What? Help my unbelief. Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner. Increase my faith. Be merciful to me, the sinner. We can always pray those. And anybody else can pray those if it's a part, not of calling on our cosmic bellhop whose name is Jesus, but of coming to the Savior who can and does save. Lord, be merciful to be the sinner. And so, Jesus does a miracle, and, and it, it calls attention to Him. He had, probably recently raised Lazarus from the dead. And, and so this was a, an impressive miracle as well. It pointed to the reality of who Jesus uh, was. And we're told that immediately the man received his sight. He follows Jesus. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. They, they were praising God that God was working in their midst. That, he, that, that, that Jesus had done what was unexplainable apart from the fact that He was indeed the Son of God. But my suspicion is that these very people, or many of them, that were in this crowd, that were willing to praise Jesus Christ when He did that which they thought was good and right, 
will be among the crowd just a few days later. They will not be shouting, praise Him. They will be shouting, crucify Him, crucify Him, crucify Him. Because again, without faith, people are always a fickle lot. If Jesus, or even their own circumstances, does not turn out to their own liking and their own expectations. So, Jesus displays His power. Third episode today, going into chapter 19. I suppose everyone here, and I won't sing it to you, and y'all can all be relieved, know that Zacchaeus was a wee-wee man, and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. Right? So, very famous story, and rightly so. And rightly so. We're going to deal with that, but I again, I love how Jesus offers to us a summary statement regarding his purpose at the conclusion of the episode. And so Jesus enters Jericho and he's passing through. That that may, The language there makes me think that it was just a, a point on the way, that there wasn't a real plan uh, to do much in, in Jericho and he is simply, uh, it's just a point on the journey and he is on his way because he is what? He has set his face toward his eternal destiny that will be accomplished in uh, Jerusalem. And we're told, and look at verse 2 there, that word behold. Okay, what does that mean? Pay attention. We'll say something important. Behold, all of a sudden, not expecting it, there's this guy Zacchaeus, and he was the chief tax collector. Now, point of contrast with the rich young ruler, compliments the parable of the Pharisee and tax collector. Just, just kind of get your mind right. Zacchaeus is going to be the incarnation of the fictional tax collector in the parable. It's going to be in real and history time and space. And he's going to stand in contrast to the rich young ruler. And he's also going to be the incarnation of what? Going through the camel, going through the eye of a needle. Because a rich man is going to do what? He's going to, do, he's going to enter the kingdom of God. Because that is what is possible with God. And so we see here, chief tax collector. We talked about tax collectors a bit ago. They were hated. They were despised. They were thought of as traitors. They were thought of, thought of as thugs. The, the whole system was corrupt. They made their money essentially jacking up prices on the taxes and ex basically extorting money from those who came their way. Jericho was kind of a tax collection center. That, that uh, It was a, it was a, uh, a place uh, where there was, was a lot of traffic and so there was a great deal of revenue to be made, whether honestly or dishonestly. And so, Zacchaeus is the chief tax collector. That means he has other tax collectors under him. And so he sends others out to, to embrace and, and, and to uh, uh, implement his corrupt policies and continues to fleece people and continues to uh, enrich himself. And we're told he was seeking to see Jesus. In God's providence, God's witness to himself, maybe Zacchaeus, as a youth, as a younger person, has sat under the instruction 
of the Word of God. For those of us that maybe have friends or family members that have departed from the church and at one time they heard the Word of God, there's always the hope that the Spirit of God would so work in them that 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 would cause them to once again seek Jesus. Whatever was working within Zacchaeus, he was seeking Jesus. And that's always a good thing. He had a problem. He was a short guy. Don't know anything about that. Somebody may can talk to me about the experience of being short. But uh, uh, in the crowd, he could not see Jesus. And so he came up with a, a strategy in verse 4. We're told he goes up and, and climbs up in a, in a tree. Might have been hard to figure out who the blind guy was, who's hollering. Full-grown man hanging out of a tree. Might have got Jesus' attention to that might have been a bit unusual, you think? And so he, he looks up and he, and he spies Zacchaeus and, and he speaks to him. He says, come down. Now, once again, I think we see not just discernment on the part of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see the reality that even in the incarnation, he was the omniscient. He was the all-knowing second person of the Trinity. He knew who Zacchaeus was and he knew what Zacchaeus wanted. He said, hey, we're going to have to sit down and talk. We're going to talk. I'm going to interact with you. I'm, I'm going to go to your house. And again, he knows he's been through this before. Now, I guess sometimes I do things kind of that's going to tick somebody off and I take pleasure in it to some measure. I don't know that Jesus took any pleasure in the fact, but he knew good and well he was going to be criticized. He'd already been indicted that, that you're, you're a glutton, you're a friend of sinners, you, you eat with tax collectors. That's horrible doesn't dissuade Jesus from saying, we're going to your house. And again, in the ancient world, and I think it's still true in the modern world to some extent, I accept, I receive you, I want to be in fellowship with you. I'm going to your house or you're coming to my house. It's still a big deal. And so, he came down. He was joyful, as expected. Those who gathered around, the religious leaders, they grumble at what Jesus has done. He's gone to be a guest of a man who is a sinner. We're not told much how much more interaction took place. And the thing is, when God works in a heart, there's not a whole lot of explanation needed. God works, and people are saved. God worked, and Zacchaeus was saved. And we see the evidence of the converting work, of the regenerating work, of the repenting work, of the believing work because he volunteers where Jesus essentially has to coerce from the rich young ruler. This is what's necessary. Zacchaeus voluntarily says, hey, I'm that camel and I'm going right through the eye of that needle. I'm willing to sell everything and follow after you. Now, I, 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 I tend to be sometimes a numbers guy. I, look, I like to look at businesses, and I go, okay, okay. Oh, wow, they're making money. But I'll, oh, my gosh, they're losing money. You know, that's just kind of, I'm a small business person, or was at one time. So I, I kind of do those kind of things. Now, I haven't seen any commentary. If y'all run across a commentary that somebody speaks to this, I'd be interested. Okay, he's rich, but I would assume that most, if not all, of his riches came from his corruption, from his dishonesty. That I don't, I don't think he had bought Apple stock or 
Amazon stock or whatever and invested well and wisely. I don't think he had done that. He had stolen that which was under his possession. And so he, he says that I'm going to give half my goods to the poor. Okay, that's half. And then that which I've defrauded or stolen, I'm going to store, restore fourfold. I, it seems to me probably he's going to run out of money somewhere in there. I don't have to do the math. But I just always have found that interesting, and nobody speaks to it. But evidently, he is willing, he's going to bankrupt himself because he has found just what Jesus said, that those who leave house or brothers or mother or parents for the sake of the kingdom, they're going to receive not only in the life to come, but right here, right now, there is something that I can receive from this man, namely salvation, that's far better than all the money that I have in my possession. Having Jesus is so much better than having the wealth of this world. And so he liquidates it all, incarnating that which was the previous discussion there with the rich young ruler, incarnating the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. And Jesus announces what? Again, not on the basis of work, all by grace through faith. But it's evident Salvation has come. Salvation is here. Salvation is real. Zacchaeus has been converted. And Jesus summarizes, this is what I'm all about. This is why I, take, I took you disciples aside a little bit ago, and I said, now listen, guys, I'm going to Jerusalem. And, and, and they're going to persecute me. They're ultimately going to kill me. I'm going to be nailed to a cross. I'm going to be killed. And guess what? Three days later, I'm going to rise again. Because I must do that for this summary of my ultimate purpose to be fulfilled is on the basis of my rejection and my crucifixion and my resurrection. It is on the basis that I will fulfill this purpose statement in verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. He didn't come to call the righteous. He came to call sinners to repentance. He came to so work in this world that people that are desperate, that all they can do is say, have mercy on me, son of David. He came to seek them out. Now to be sure, the incarnate Christ is not walking around Clay, Alabama. But let me tell you this. His word and his spirit as proclaimed as, as proclaimed and utilized through the ministries of the church, both in the corporate organized sense, but in the individual sense as we go out, that message is still at work in the world. It, it is still prompting men and women and boys and girls to seek the Savior, to recognize the Savior is the, the only hope for eternal salvation. He is still seeking and saving. And we are still proclaiming that He's seeking and saving. We're proclaiming Jesus came and He did. He accomplished what He said He was going to do. He came to live and to die. Not to be served, but be the servant of all and to give His life as a ransom for many. And because He did that, He's still doing this. Seeking and saving the lost. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word, your truth, the power of your gospel. And we confess that we don't 
often see things like the healing of the blind or the raising of the dead. But we do think we see the greater miracle of the resurrection from the dead, the healing of the sight of the blind in regenerating and bringing people to the saving knowledge of your Son, Jesus Christ. And you are at work. Your word is still true, and your word goes forth, and it presents you, and your spirit still works. And you take that word, and you penetrate even the, the hardest, the most depraved of men and women, and you save them. And that indeed is a, a great testimony to the accomplishment of your purpose. It is a demonstration of your power, and it is a fulfillment of each and everything that was prophesied of you and that you promised that indeed you would do. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name.